Hello, and welcome to the G2 Podcast. When I was 19 years old, one random morning in the summer of 2011, yes, you can do the maths, I was driving my mum's car near my parents' house in a little Yorkshire town called Weatherby. It's a sleepy sort of place. Nothing much happens there. (laughs) Some people beg to differ, but it's it's sleepy. (laughs) Trust me. And I was sat at a junction indicating right when I noticed a really badly parked blue Subaru with gold wheel trim. And then all of a sudden, four people ran up to the car and they were all wearing black. And hold on, they all had balaclavas on or masks. And actually, some of them were holding hammers and one of them was holding a sack. And they jumped into the car, which went screeching off the pavement, nearly into my mum's car, and sped off down the street. Well, I pulled in and I was so stunned by such an event happening before 10 a.m. in Weatherby. I was flummoxed, guys. And I thought, maybe I've misunderstood. Like, I don't want to... I don't want to make a fuss, like, I don't want to get into trouble, but oh, I should probably really tell someone. So I was like, do you know what? I'll call the non-emergency police number. So hold on. I don't actually know the non-emergency police number. So then I was like, I'll call 118-500. So I called 118-500 and waited and then said, excuse me, do you have the non-emergency police number? And then I called the non-emergency police number and waited in a queue to tell someone that I'd seen some masked people jump into a car with weaponry. And as I rounded the corner to get to my summer job, several police cars, I kid you not, pulled up outside the local jewellers with all their sirens on and it had been smashed in and there was police tape going up and it turns out I may have witnessed the getaway from an armed robbery. And my reaction was to call 118500. And if you don't know what 118500 is, ask your parents. (laughs) Now, you may not have done anything quite that daft, because that is the actual event that I'm talking about. But I reckon I'm not alone. I think when we're faced with the bizarre or the overwhelming kind of, um, like an overwhelming situation, we just react. We just regress. We end up doing the most random things in our natural, unfiltered responses to shock. Whether it's like a random surprise, like a nice thing or good or bad. Um, When we find ourselves faced with something that we just cannot process or understand, we just kind of drop to our default response. So, for example, Han shared with me the other day, um, really sadly, when their family dog died, uh, Frankie, she just didn't know what to do with herself. And her response was to create this. Can you see it's on an iPhone screen, which is beautifully color-coded and categorized in a slightly over-the-top way. Oh, Han, that is Han's default. She tidies, she organizes. When in doubt, that's what she does, she cleans. And sometimes when we don't know how to respond to something that is in front of us, we just do without thinking. We tidy, we call 118-500. Can you think of the last time you were really shocked or overwhelmed? How did you react? What was your first response? Not your good response, not your last response. What was your first response? Peter, from our passage today, was one of Jesus's first followers. And he had a few examples of when he felt overwhelmed. 
And today's event, as recorded in the book of Matthew, is one of those. We're looking at the transfiguration. So turn in your Bibles or on your phones to Matthew chapter 17. I will give you a second to tap your way over. Oh, don't you miss the sound of turning pages? Okay. I hope you're with me. Matthew chapter 17, right at the beginning. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, They fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man, that's him, has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why then did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. We don't often get like epic thunderstorms in our part of the world, do we? But one day this summer, after one of the heat waves, um, there was this moment. I was sat in the garden and all our neighbours were like one by one like retreating back into the house and shutting the windows and the sky was clear blue but it suddenly started to turn like this dark ominous grey and the air grew really thick and humid and the wind stopped and rumbling in the distance grew nearer and nearer until you could see white flashes in the sky and then it grew to like blindingly white like someone doing a like a camera flash in your eyes and it cracked with thunder and I was sat just happened to be starting to prepare this um, I was reading this passage and as I saw that light flash in the distance and get closer and closer and the birds rush across the sky to find shelter I just got the tiniest glimpse of the bright white light the disciples were dazzled by as they saw Jesus in all of his power and glory. I just got the the smallest smidgen of what it must have been like for Jesus to be transfigured before you. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. How bright is lightning? He was brighter. How powerful is the sun? He outshone it. 
This is a really baffling passage and it's really beyond our imagination and experience. It's meant to be epic and, and glorious to an earth shattering extent. But for many of us, or at least for me, it's not a side of Jesus that I've personally experienced. Um, Jesus speaks to me, but not audibly. Um, he guides me through his spirit living in me and has done amazing things in my life to, to heal me and set me free. And I've seen that happen in other people's lives, but he hasn't shown up in a blaze of lightning yet. Oh, never know what happened today. Um, but let's not get put off. Let's walk through it together and try to imagine it. Remember that it's not just like a, oh, that's a nice story, but it's a real life experience that has been recorded by Matthew about 2000 years ago. Let's start from the beginning, the best place to start. Uh, verse one, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So Jesus is climbing a mountain with his three best friends. They're often shown in accounts of Jesus's life to be his like closest pals. In Luke and Mark's version of this event, because they write about it as well, it's so that these guys can go to like have like friend time and be alone to pray. Like remember Jesus lived this really public life. He had crowds following him at every turn and, and asking for healing and asking um, him different questions. So a mountain is a really good place to go and rest and have some time with your friends. Verse two. There, Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. So transfiguration means a change in form or appearance. It, it's like, it's bigger than a transformation. It's more like exalting. It's a spiritual change. It's glorifying. It's becoming radiant in glory. So either randomly, just like, just happens, or maybe it's as he's praying, um, as it happens in the other accounts, Jesus' appearance transforms and he begins to radiate light brighter than the sun. If you look at this in like TV and movie renditions, it's quite interesting. He just looks like he's had a really good wash and he's advertising Vanish for making your whites even whiter. But just imagine it's better than that. And here's a human being that you've been around night and day for years, which these guys have, um, who apparently isn't a head turner in terms of looks, according to all accounts. Um, but he becomes brighter than the sun itself. Jesus is fully human, but also fully God. And his glory, his godliness is being revealed here in this moment. Verse three, let's keep going. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So Moses and Elijah had died hundreds of years before, at least. So they're reappearing from the dead, but they're not just appearing as like floating images. They're talking with Jesus. So seeing him talk with these guys shows his authority. It's like a glimpse into heaven itself where the dead are resurrected in the presence of God. First of all, Moses represents the law. So he's the one who led the Israelite people out of slavery in Egypt. He's like a patriarch. He's called like the patriarch of, of their people. And he's talked about as being friends with God. He parted the Red Sea. He climbed Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. He received the law, the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. And he came down from that mountain, literally glowing with the presence of God. So this has happened in like a little, uh, like a little hint before. Moses was one of the most significant figures in the history of their people and in faith history. And he represents right standing with God, the way to live, not because he nailed it, um, but because he worked with God to bring people out of slavery into freedom and into the new way to live, to be guided by God and live his way. Elijah, on the other hand, standing at the other side of Jesus, represents the prophets. 
so we can read about his life in, in 1 Kings. He called the people of God back to God and away from other gods and false idols. So they got distracted. They started worshiping other things. And he was like, come back and be his people. He performed amazing miracles by God's power. So he called down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel. And he eventually was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. He didn't even appear to have like a normal death. He was very much far from perfect, but he's seen as the most powerful of all the prophets that heralded the coming of the Jewish Messiah, who was Jesus. Both Elijah and Moses met God on mountaintops in the most significant moments of their lives on earth. And here they are again. They're chatting with God again, but in the face of Jesus. Both Elijah and Moses together are the coming together of all aspects of the Jewish faith. And the disciples would have recognized that. Both the law and the prophets, the righteousness and the revelation of God. And Jesus is the centerpiece. I'm going to come back to the middle bit, which is verses 4 to 8. We're going to jump to the end of the passage just because we're on Elijah already. Um, so if you go to verse 10 and the, and the disciples start asking about Elijah as they climb down the mountain, which can seem a bit disconcerting. But... The disciples and their nation, their people, have been waiting for this sign of Elijah for centuries, literally centuries. They, and that's why they ask about these prophecies about the Savior of Israel, which said that Elijah would return first and announce the Savior's arrival. So all their nation had been waiting centuries for an announcement, but it had been and gone. And that was in John the Baptist. So John the Baptist, Jesus's cousin, was the new Elijah. And he'd come to herald Jesus as Messiah. And he's like, this is the king who's going to save all of Israel and save the earth. But just as many, many people, the very people even who spent their lives studying God, didn't recognize Jesus as God when he moved in next door. Um, they didn't recognize John the Baptist as the new Elijah. So that's what Jesus is explaining. So the transfiguration, the actual glowing, uh, the appearance of Moses and Elijah, the new Elijah who was John the Baptist, all point to Jesus being God himself, the saviour of the world, the fulfilment of the prophets and the law and all of the Jewish faith. Jesus embodies all of the hopes and prayers of the people as the hope-for king. But they all, also these things, point to his death. As he says at the end of this scene in verse 13, he says, you know, he's going to submit to suffer and rise from the dead. So at the backdrop of all of this amazing glory and this incredible, powerful thing is his crucifixion. He's talked about it in, his, in the previous chapter, in, in chapter 16. So it's kind of like hovering. There's like this shadow of the cross um, before and after this scene. His glory here in the transfiguration is overlaid. If you imagine it like two images coming together with the crucifixion, where he is crucified by the state, he's condemned by those who claim to know better, and he's abandoned by those who love him, as depicted in chapter 27 of Matthew's account. Tom Wright puts it really well. He kind of compares these two pictures of the transfiguration and the crucifixion. He says, here on a mountain is Jesus revealed in glory, and there on a hill outside Jerusalem is Jesus revealed in shame. Here his clothes are shining white, but there they've been stripped off and soldiers have gambled for them. Here he's flanked by Moses and Elijah, two of Israel's greatest heroes, representing the law and the prophets. And there he is flanked by two brigands, two criminals, representing the level to which Israel has sunk in rebellion against God. 
I could have written several talks probably on, I'm not showing off, I'm just saying, there's a lot to talk about, on the significance of the appearance of Moses and Elijah. What I'm saying is, can't go into all the detail, guys. Um, We could spend hours just looking at the transfiguration itself, how glory is revealed, how it sits in parallel to the cross. Um, But we've explored a little bit of that already, and there'll be time in in groups and things like that to, to look at it in more detail. But I think there's a bit that can really speak to us right now. And God is focusing our attention on a certain part of this story. And that is how Peter reacts to the transfiguration and what God says to him in response. So it's verses four to eight that I feel like um, God really wants to speak to all of us today on. So let's go back to the middle. Jesus has been transfigured. So Jesus is glowing. You know where you are. And in response, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and he touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Let's start with the voice from heaven. So these are familiar words. Can anyone work out where we've heard them before? Have a little think. This is my son, whom I love. Rings a bell. It's Matthew 3, verse 16 onwards. It's Jesus' baptism. So um, as soon as Jesus was baptized, it says in Matthew chapter 3, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Let's bear in mind that God could choose to do anything because he's God. So it's not like he's like, oh, I'm really limited and I can only affirm Jesus by saying it out loud from a, from a dove. Um, he could speak to him through his Holy Spirit. Like we would hear most, mostly hear from God today is through the Holy Spirit, um, like in our own minds and hearts, or um, it might be through someone else or through scripture. This choice to do it out loud is a really lavish, loving um, way of God to be like, I want to be undeniable in both of these scenarios. I want my voice to boom out over the landscape and say to everyone, this is my son and I love him. So why here? Why say it at this point and at the transfiguration, baptism and transfiguration? That's, that's their interesting bits to choose. So in both moments, Jesus has just reconfirmed his purpose on earth and set himself to obedience to his father. He's like declared his hand. So his baptism, it's the beginning of his three-year ministry and he's humbled himself to do it like God's way. Like he's humbled himself to do it, uh, be baptized by his cousin. Even though he's God himself, uh, he goes down to the river and he begins leading his disciples, healing the sick and preaching the gospel. And so God responds by being like, oh, this is my son. I'm affirming it from heaven. In the previous chapter before the transfiguration, Jesus has started talking about his coming death explicitly to his disciples. So it says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So Jesus reconfirms why he is on earth and what he intends to do to save all of humanity. Again, he's like being like, 
this is my focus. I'm setting my focus. He could have done it differently again. Let's remember that he is God. He could have been like, actually, I'm going to lord it over everyone. Uh, actually, I'm going to do it my own way. But he's like, no, I'm going to die to save the entirety of the universe. And so God is like, I'm going to remind you um, that you're my son and you act like it. In all three of the accounts of Jesus's life, so in, um, well, there's four, but in all the three of the accounts of Jesus's life that show this scenario, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, so God says the words of, he affirms Jesus as his son, who he loves, who he's pleased with. But at the transfiguration, there's a difference. God says from the clouds to the disciples present on the mountaintop, to Moses and Elijah who are there in conversation with Jesus, and to us today, God says, this is my son whom I love, who I'm pleased with. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. What is the voice of God responding to, though? So we go back a verse. You see, Peter's response to the transfiguration is overwhelm. Like, how would you react? The shock and awe and surprise at someone shining like the sun is unimaginable. And so his reaction is a little bit random. Mark and Luke's account go as far as to actually excuse Peter, uh, unlike Matthew's account, which is the one we're looking at. Mark and Luke go, Peter did not know what he was talking about because he was very frightened. <laughs> They're like, oh, how embarrassing. Um, whereas Matthew doesn't give him that break. He's just like, this is what he said. Um, in a move not dissimilar from calling 118-500, having witnessed a violent robbery, Peter really understandably just starts suggesting building sheds on a mountaintop. Because why not? His baseline default natural reaction without thinking is to crack on and build. He's so startled. Can you even imagine? And frightened at his friend transforming in appearance and the appearance of two people who are dead. He just responds without thinking. I get it. I would do that. Like maybe he's just responding the only way he knew how. Yeah, like maybe that's his, his default is to take action. So we know from all accounts that, that Peter was really like renowned for being action driven. He was hasty and he's like, come on, like, let's just crack on. So maybe he's just reverting to type. Like maybe you can relate to that. Have you ever jumped to your default in response to the unknown or the overwhelming? What do you default to? Are you overly hesitant? Or are you jumping to hasty decisions? Do you organize your iPhone apps to color-coded categories? Do you clean? Do you take action and rush to get tasks done? Do you rush to certain relationships or routines or comforts? Do you go to particular habits or conversations? We, I, find it so hard to sit with the unknown and that which overwhelms and challenges us. What Peter has before him is inexplicable. We're finding it hard to get our heads around it, and it hasn't happened to us. <laughs> he was actually there. We find it hard to sit without answers from God, to sit with mystery in a good and bad way and magnificence of God and how inexplicable he is and how we can't understand him. And so sometimes we just go back to our familiar rather than stay in that tension. We rush and we're like, let me box you in, God. Let me give you a house. <laughs> Let me put you in my little shelter or structure rather than just listen to him and let him be God. In the previous chapter, um, 
uh, we were just looking at it in chapter 16 as well, just a few days before Jesus has said to Peter as well, that Peter was the rock on which he would build his church. Oh, that's amazing. And Peter, I reckon, maybe thought, do you know what? Let's get building. Like, let's just start cracking on. Maybe he was just impatient to start and see the results of what Jesus had talked about. He's like, finally, like you've spoken this purpose and calling and vision over my life. And it's being realized six days later, if only life was like that. Um, maybe Jesus has spoken a purpose or a vision or something over your life. Maybe you feel like you're not in the right place right now and you're meant to be somewhere else. Do you feel like God is leading you to a particular relationship or life stage or vocation that just doesn't seem to have come off yet? And when God speaks to you or shows you something or when someone sees it in you or there's like an opportunity, you're like, this is it. Let's get building. Let's build shelters. God's going to turn it around. God's going to heal me. God's going to fix it. Now it begins. Whatever it is. How easy it is for us to look for our purpose everywhere and try to get God to fit in with that timing, just like Peter did. I can really relate to Peter's eagerness to just get started. We want to rush to be the finished article of what Jesus has called us to be, rather than realizing that he's called us into years and years, a lifetime of relationship and following him through uncertainty and mystery and faith. We just want to build now, like Peter did. He's like, let me build for you now, Jesus. Let's just make it happen. But God's like, just listen. I don't know what God is saying to you or what is happening in your life right now. I'm not sure if you're feeling overwhelmed or scared or bored or impatient or otherwise. But I reckon many of us of responding like Peter. Whether we're responding to having to live in the tension and the unknown, living without answers or instructions from God, or whether we're responding to a call that we feel like God has placed on us and we just want to see it now. We want to see our purpose fulfilled. We want to have meaning now. Either way, God's answer is the same today. Listen to my son, he says. Maybe you're starting to build like Peter because that's what you know. Maybe you're just doing something because you don't know what else to do. Maybe you're trying to rush ahead to get to the good part. When we step into the glory of God and the tension of both his magnificence and his might and where we stand in our humanness and randomness, it is terrifying. The disciples actually fell down, we see in the passage, not in shame, but because they couldn't withstand the power of God showing up so directly. But when they do look up, when they do listen to him, they see nothing except Jesus. And he's saying, don't be afraid. Oh, isn't that the dream? Like you fall down in life. And when you look up, you see nothing except Jesus. No distractions. That is all we need. Come back to looking at nothing except Jesus and listening to him. Yes, there's a church to build that God is using to save the world. 
Yes, there's a life that you are called to in which you have purpose and you show Jesus's love to others through your family, your work, your conversation, your attitude, your money, your friendships. But it starts with and always comes back to listening to him. And he's saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of him. Don't be afraid of what life may hold. So at the beginning of this year at G2, as we enter this chapter of Matthew, which is like Jesus's second wind, (laughs) he's like at the second part of his ministry where he's like, and now we go to Jerusalem and now we go to the cross. We want to start this year by listening to Jesus. There's loads of ways that we can listen to him, but today we're literally just going to listen in silence and let him speak to us. And that might be through his spirit speaking within us, through our, through our hearts and minds. So we're going to hold that silence together. I'm going to pray for us. Jesus. Jesus, would we fix our eyes on you because you are the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you that you have called us to build. And we all have something to build. But before we start, we want to listen to you. So speak to us now. Hold our distractions. Help us focus on you and look at you and hear your voice. Jesus, would you speak to us through your Holy Spirit? We are listening to you.